uh, father of Abigail, a wonderful blessing to us as a church. Uh, he's a man, a, a godly man. I think what you're going to be hearing, you'll, and you'll hear it, I think, in the preaching, uh, he's a man who's seeking to live under the Word and to trust in God and walk in these ways, a very genuine, humble man, but also, I believe, a gifted and anointed man, too, to bring us God's Word. So I'm excited to hear from Phil and to watch what God has been doing and what he will be doing. So let's welcome our friend and our brother Phil Alder up as he brings us this word. Good morning. Today as we start off, I'm going to ask you to do something a little different than you normally do at the beginning of a sermon, Um, and that's close your eyes and imagine a time, if you can remember, where you were without worry and without care. So close your eyes for a second and just go to that place. Think about where you were at without worry and without care. I remember a place like that when I was a kid. I remember I was... Uh, I would wake up on Saturday morning and go out and bike ride around the cul-de-sac. And I, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was without worry. I was without care. Yeah, I had homework. But compared to what the stresses of life are when you become an adult, that is a pretty sweet place to live in, is without worry and without care, not being anxious. Today, you may wake up with an alarm clock tomorrow, or tomorrow you may wake up with an alarm clock, and what's the first thing that runs through your mind? You may say, well, I have to do this for work. I have to get ready for this later on in the week. I have to... There may be a list of things that rush into your conscience even before you're fully awake. In fact, many of those things may be Things that you really have no power to change. But in this section today, Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to you about being anxious. And many times when we hear messages about being anxious, the answer that people give us are unhelpful, or the answers that people give us are unhelpful. Uh, as I was preparing for this this week, one of the guys at my work showed me a, a, a little sketch, a video with Bob Newhart. And he plays a counselor, and this woman walks in with all these phobias and problems. And he basically says, I have two words for you. Stop it. And he yells at her. He tells her to stop it. Well, this is not a passage where Jesus is saying, just stop it. He's actually giving real hope. He's giving you a vision of what kingdom living is. What being in God's economy versus being in the world's economy. Let's take a look at the passage together. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Just look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of life to your span? And why are you anxious about clothing? Just look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither, so, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, as I prepared this, I realized that a lot, of, a lot of this passage really pertains to my life. And I know a lot of it pertains to your life as well. Because the nature of being a person, a human, in a fallen state is to be anxious. That's our nature. That's our natural bent, is to be anxious, to worry, to fret. Now, if you notice, this passage is closely linked to last week's passage on money. It says, therefore, that's a connecting word to, um, to the last verse, which basically said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. So now he's talking about another aspect of serving. He's talking about being anxious. You can't be anxious and trust in God. The word anxious here means to be distracted, to be thrown off course, to think about something other than your main focus, what your main focus should be. And Jesus starts off this section stating very clearly that we are not to be anxious. So how do we do that? We have so many pressures in this world. We have so many thoughts that we think about. If you're single, you may think, well, I'm anxious about finding the right person. If you're married, you may think about, well, I need to take care of my spouse. I need to look after their best interests. If you have kids, you think about, I hope they grow up well. I hope they love Christ when they grow up. There are so many areas that you can be anxious about. As students, as parents, Multiple areas. Jesus is saying not to be anxious. So how is that possible? I believe the answer is here in this verse. But before we get to that, I want you to imagine you are on an adventure wilderness trek. You're in the middle of the Sahara. I think I have a picture of of the Sahara there in the slideshow. Um, You're in the middle of the Sahara with a guide, and this is like a dream come true. 
Now, if you know anything about the Sahara, it is a huge desert. Does anyone know how many square miles are in the Sahara? 3.5 million square miles. Over 3, 3 million square miles are in the Sahara Desert. It's a huge desert. And there's tons of dangers within the desert. And so you're with this guide, and you decide that even after the guide explains all the dangers, all the, what, all the animals that could hurt you, all the ways that you could die in the desert, you decide to wander off from the guide. Now you're saying to yourself as you sit here, well, that's not very smart. <laughs> well, that's a lot like what it, we are when we're anxious because the guide is God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. The guide is the one that can tell us where the dangers, where the pitfalls are, and he can lead us without us worrying and caring about the things that are going on around us. He can empower us to overcome those obstacles. And yet, so many times, I find myself not choosing to follow the guide, but choosing to be anxious. Why is that? Why do we do that when we are children of God, when we have been bought with a price and we have not been left as orphans? The Holy Spirit has been given so that you will not wander off to death, but that you will go on to life. Our lives consist of more than just material belongings and food. Jesus is drawing our conversation here to a greater and more important understanding of who he is and what his care is for our lives. We're not to waste our time being anxious because this is an area in which God has called us with his voice to listen and obey. See, the root of being anxious actually is going to be found in this passage. And Jesus isn't saying that these things, food, drink, and clothing, have no immediate worth. But what he's saying is there's something of greater worth. That's what he's saying. He's saying don't be distracted by these these other things that are of small comparison compared to what the greater worth is. Just like a king leads his kingdom, most kings, if you notice throughout history, have led their kingdoms through allowing their subjects to be anxious and to worry and to fret because then the king can control them. Jesus is not that kind of king. He is a king that says, my kingdom is not made up of anxiety. In fact, I want you to be free from anxiety. My kingdom is not made up of worry. In fact, I want you to be free of worry. Ultimately, our Father knows what we need. Our Father knows what we need and will provide real sustenance for those needs. After all, Jesus points to the birds and he and he says, look at the birds. Have you ever watched the eagles? Have you ever watched the robins? Do you ever see them 
kind of walking around worried, like, I, I don't know if I'm going to have enough to eat today. You don't. In fact, you see that they're sitting there eating. They may be working, but there's no anxiety in them. They may, may be picking up worms or building a nest, seeing that spring is coming, as today reminds us. No, instead, <clears throat> instead of being anxious, we're called to look to the provision of our Father. We're not called to toil and to worry. God then, <clears throat> Jesus then points us to the lilies. Why are you anxious about clothing? He points to the lilies and he says, look how brilliant they are. Even in all of Solomon's kingdom, the lilies aren't as brilliant. I mean, uh, Solomon is not as brilliant as the lilies. He was the richest, wisest um, man to ever live, outside of Christ, of course. Christ was the wisest. But of his time, he was known for his wisdom. And he's saying, here's the news that, Jesus is saying, here's the news that you need to know. The lilies don't worry. And you know what the end result of the lilies are? is to be thrown into the fire. The grass uh, is to be cut and thrown into the fire. Now, are you not worth more than a lily or than a bird? That is the emphasis Christ is putting on there. The lilies don't worry about tomorrow. They don't toil. They don't spin. They don't work for new clothes. They just do what lilies do. I think that's a little, a little bit how Christ wants us to respond as children. That's our nature, is to have relationship with the Father, to be provided for by the Father. In fact, at this point in the passage, after he talks about the lilies, he says, Oh, you of little faith. And that, that word actually is... Uh, little faith. It's like a title. It's like a title that Jesus said, you're the little faith ones. You only have a small amount of faith. In fact, that same word is used uh, in this passage in in Matthew 14. I think I have it there. It states, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out into the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, let's be honest here. I think all of us feel a little bit like Peter at times. We feel like we're out in the middle of the water without a hope in the world in the midst of anxiety. But what did Peter have to do? All he had to do was cry out to Christ, and Christ delivered him. I think the key to not being anxious 
is actually in believing. The key to not being filled with worry is to ask God for more faith. Faith is that gift from God that we cannot manufacture. And so we need the Holy Spirit to impart fresh faith each day. We need the Holy Spirit to bring about a change in our hearts from being the anxious little faith ones to the ones that are reliant completely upon his word and his presence. And one of the keys to that is to ask boldly, like Peter did, in the midst of his need. Dr. Robinson, uh, he's a professor down at Gordon-Conwell, tells a story of when he was uh, the president of Denver Seminary. And he talks about how they needed a, a phone system. It was kind of interesting. He said he learned a valuable lesson when he went to a businessman and asked him for money. He said, well, the phone system's going to cost $20,000. And the businessman said, what do you want me to do about this? He said, well, how about if you write a check for $1,000 to help us out? And the businessman actually turned to him after he wrote the check, and he said, you insulted me. To which Dr. Robinson thought he meant, I shouldn't have asked him for money. But he said, you asked me for 1000 when you needed 20000 Either you underestimated me where I am financially, or worse, you thought I had money but wouldn't give it, in which case you insulted my generosity. Now, as I was thinking about this, how many times do we insult God's generosity? How many times do we not ask when we should? I mean, just, just think about it. God has immeasurable riches. He has storehouses that we can only begin to dream about, but are unfathomable in our understanding of what riches mean. And God promises in Hebrews 6, he says to let us draw near with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. What is your need? What are you anxious about? Come boldly. Don't ask him for a mere pittance. Ask him for the full amount. Don't say, well, God, I just need this little amount to make it through this next minute. No, ask him for a fresh measure of the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. There is not a person alive that does not need the presence and power of God. I was thinking about this in regards to um, our daughter. And if I had anything in my power to help her when she is uncomfortable and, and I, it's, she's not throwing a temper tantrum or being rebellious, that is. But if, if, there is like, if she was hungry and I had food, I would give it to her. If she was thirsty, I would give her something to drink. God is more than a human father because he has the abundance to provide all our needs. The last part of this first, of this first um, 
point I want to make, too, is about the Gentiles. And that's not a word we use a lot. He says the Gentiles do these things. Now, what he actually is, is saying here, the nations, all other nations outside the people of God are the ones that do these things. And I think that's important because we have to remember that this whole sermon that we're in is about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world. And so as he's talking, talking to the hearers, his disciples and the people of God, he's saying these are the things that the nations do. Now what makes you different from the rest of the nations? God is not too busy. He's not unaware. He knows all our needs and understands where and what we need at what time we need it. He wants to hear from his children. In fact, if you remember back in verse 8, he says, uh, your father knows what you need even before you ask of him. This idea of father was brand new in many ways to the people of God when they heard it and when Jesus first preached this. And I think, in some ways, we forget that he's a father that's close to us at every minute of every day. And he's looking to provide the needs that we need. So the first part is do not be anxious. So that's what we are to put off. And the way we put that off is by asking for the Spirit of God, to impart to us more faith. The second part is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So this is what we're going to talk about putting on. There's usually within commands, there's a, there's a negative, you put off this, and then there's a positive that God wants you to do. So what does it look like to seek first the kingdom of God? It's not some secret kingdom on a... Probably many of you saw National Treasure, where he's looking for a secret treasure and he's going through. It is hidden, but it's not distant. It's not something we have to decode. Basically, the kingdom of God is the fact that the rule of God and the reign of God is being brought to bear on every part of your life. So how are you allowing the rule of God to reign during the course of your day? How does that dictate from the time your alarm goes off to the time you lay your head back down the pillow? How does that dictate when you drive? When someone cuts you off and says, in, in, you know, what do you think in your mind? How is the reign of God coming to bear on your driving, even here in Massachusetts? That is what this is talking about. Are you bringing your life under the dominion of who God is and his good reign? Are you submitting to his authority? Or are you fretting and worrying about what will happen? Let's just review real quick of what kingdom living looks like. Because this whole message that Jesus is preaching is actually about the kingdom. So the, I have a list of the different sections that we've gone through at this point in the series. So the first section is the Beatitudes. These turn our understanding 
to who uh, who should be looked up. Uh, I'm sorry, who should be looked at as being the the most in the kingdom. In other words, you know, blessed are the meek in spirit, for they shall uh, see God. So Jesus turns the norms in this world up on their head, and that in the Beatitudes. Then salt and light, looking at living visibly and tastefully, tastefully in uh, a dark and unsavory world. Anger, lust, divorce. God does not allow for any evil in his kingdom. The law is fulfilled in Christ. We cannot keep it. Ultimately, Christ is the only one in person who can keep and do the work of the law. Oaths, retaliation, love your neighbors, these all deal with uh, how we relate to God and to others. The disciples' prayer and fasting, communication, um, communication to our Father is essential. And then laying up treasures in heaven where your investment does not get corrupted. So the reign of God is seen in all these areas. In, in the last chapter, there's going to be, in chapter 7, there's going to be many more. So how are we being dependent? Because the reality here is that all these things are impossible for any of us to do apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So how are you depending and how are you asking for help in the midst of living out kingdom, the kingdom reign. It's not a self-made kingdom. It's not something that God just saved us and then we have the rest to do on our own. We just have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That is not the kingdom that God's talking about. He's talking about a kingdom that is based on people who come to him out of their need and he provides for their need. And he is the good king that provides in the midst of our, of our trouble, of our anxiety, of our worries. The kingdom of God is growing because God is bringing his kingdom to bear on all of our lives. I thought, I thought for a, a while on this, I think Luke... 11 really speaks to the heart of who God is. So I have a, the overhead there. Luke 11, 9 through 13 states, and I, will, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it is open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? God's heart is to bless his children. If I haven't said it clear enough yet, listen to what I have to say. God's promise for you is that you seek his kingdom reign in every aspect of your life. That will not lead to anxiety, but that will lead to freedom. That will lead to the ability to step out in faith and to speak to your neighbor about 
God's good reign, to speak to the, your coworkers about how God has changed your life. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God should occupy our minds and imaginations because there's nothing greater. God's righteousness is the second part that we're called to seek. Where have we seen the righteousness of God before in this sermon? Uh, If you look at verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And also in verse 20, I tell you, unless unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that seems like a pretty steep, the second verse there seems like a pretty steep curve. Unless your righteousness exceeds those of the most righteous people of the day, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does righteousness mean? We hear it a lot as Christians, but what does it truly mean? Righteousness is the idea of justified or not bearing any guilt at all. In fact, bear, when, when the Bible talks about righteousness, it's not talking about just not sinning. It's talking about having a, having a goodness in itself, in yourself. And so when Jesus is talked about as righteous, he never sinned, and he was completely good. I think this, this might be easiest Uh, The easiest way to convey this is in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. Notice that phrase, and are justified by his grace. And as a... um, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward in it as his propitiation, that's the sacrifice for our sins, by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over our former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be, and notice his phrase, he might be the just, and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He is the just one. He's the only one that's truly just. And he's justified us as sinners and brought us into a righteous state. When we seek after righteousness, we're actually called to seek after Christ. We, our state is tied to the son's state. When the father sees us, he doesn't see sinners after we've come to Christ. He sees Christ in us. And so when he loves us, he loves us as, as he loves Christ. So that is the state of seeking righteousness. It's not something we can do in, in and of ourselves. We need the power of the Spirit to bring about faith into our lives and to grow that as we believe the kingdom in, each, in every aspect of our lives as we bring about the reign and submit to the reign of God's rule. God's 
heart is for his children. And he loves to give extravagantly good gifts to them. Because he says all these things are going to be added to you. He's not saying, well, I'll just take care of this, this one thing. All these things are going to be added to you. What is your need today? I'm sure many of you walked in with anxious or worried uh, aspects, thinking about maybe tomorrow, or thinking about later on today, or thinking about later on this month, or sometime you may be worried. What is your need, and how are you bringing it under God's rule? By asking him for help. By asking the Spirit to fill and to guide and to lead. For, the, for me, that's an immense part of winning that struggle, is submitting and asking for the Spirit's help. And I think that will help you too. Because, as you notice, he doesn't really end, what, he seemingly doesn't end on a positive note, if you notice. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not presenting a pie in the sky. You do this, you'll be happy forever. That's not at all what he's presenting. Instead, he is presenting a clear description that anxiety and trouble do not have to have a one-to-one correlation. Just because there's trouble, that doesn't mean anxiety has to exist there. Because by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, you can walk through trouble and not be anxious because you realize the rule of God is in the midst of that trouble and his goodness is seen at the end of that trouble and in the midst of it. The Father's heart is always for his children. The Father's purposes are always to be glorified in the lives of his children. If you don't believe me, let me just give you an example of uh, David Livingston, who was kind of an extreme missionary for his time. He was a Scottish missionary. He was a doctor. He was an explorer. And he had a heart for Africa. And he traveled immensely throughout Africa sharing the gospel. Listen to his words. People... Talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. People can call this a sacrifice, or can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply acknowledging a great debt that we owe to our God, which we can never repay. Is that a sacrifice which brings our own reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of glorious destiny? It is emphatically no sacrifice. Rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, forgoing the common conveniences of this life, these may make us pause and cause our spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these things, all these are nothing compared with the glory which shall be later revealed in and through us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this, we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high 
and gave himself for us. You see, that's coming from a man that endured. I mean, he endured immense trials, immense tribulations. And at the end of it all, he said, there's no sacrifice. That's a man who walked out in faith the rule of God and the reign of God in his life. So as I close, let me ask you these things. How does this affect your thinking? Tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., the alarm goes off. What is going to be the thoughts that come back, the thoughts of anxiety for the day? How will your thoughts be turned from self to the Father and his provision? Second thing, how does this cause your heart to either be glad or to be anxious in the midst of trouble? Is your heart conscious of the kingdom or are your emotions responding to issues at the moment? How is your belief quotient? Are you moving towards belief that's strong, or are you moving away from it to unbelief? These are indicators of whether the rule of God and the reign of God are being sought actively in your life. The last thing here. Where are you most tempted during the day when you're in the midst of work, and you're, when you're in the midst of doing what you do during your day. Do you ask for help from the Holy Spirit? Do you ask for the Father to provide the needs of moment by moment as you, as you encounter them? With that said, listen to what Charles Spurgeon writes. There is one who cares for you. His eye is fixed upon you. His heart beats with pity for your woe. And his omnipotent hand shall bring you the needed help. The darkest cloud shall scatter itself in showers of mercy. He, if you are one of his family, will bind up your wounds and heal your broken heart. Do not doubt his grace because of your tribulation but believe that he loves you as much in seasons of trouble as in times of, of happiness. If God cares for you, why do you need to care too? Listen to that last phrase. If God cares for you, why do you need to care too? Can you trust him for your soul and not your body? He has never refused to bear your burden. He has never fainted under their weight. Come then, come then, soul. Say goodbye to anxiety and leave all your concerns in the hands of a gracious and good God. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your heart is towards your children. Lord, would you... Come now, even in power, in your presence of your Holy Spirit, 
and communicate the truth of your word to the hearts of your children here. Would you illuminate these truths and help us to walk out them through faith and through the power of your spirit. Thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for bringing rebellious sinners from the kingdom of darkness into your kingdom of light and provision of goodness. And guide us. Guide us this week. Guide us each day. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. If the bank could come up as we close. Thank you, Phil, for serving.